Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 17, a podcast you can sink your teeth into. So it is June now. I'm in lockdown number four, with, along with all my other Victorians. It's all fun and games, but it has given me time away from recording and also being home. Plenty of time to put together content for the podcast. That said, I had written this one a while back now, and from what I've seen of downloads and comments... The gory health-related ones seem to be a favourite amongst those listening, and thank you for doing so. I know I was shocked when I read some of the history behind how mental patients were treated in such shocking ways. I still shudder at the thought of that revolution treatment and being spun around at a hundred times a minute. Then, of course, there was the episode on surgery and how Robert Liston could take your limb in virtually no time at all surgical rock star in an era of no anaesthetic. I'm definitely going to be revisiting those topics more in the future and put together some more stories that will probably have a hope you just haven't eaten warning to them. But in looking at those areas, I realised there was one I'd missed and it's something we all pretty much cringe at. We'll dodge the checkups, hate the waiting, cringe at the bills and most of all, we really don't love those needles, and we really don't like that drill. That's right, guest lampers, we're off to the dentist. You might think something as simple as having a brush to clean your teeth and maybe some sort of paste that might help you would be something that was a common item in any home. Seems so simple today, doesn't it? But like so many areas of what we see today as general knowledge wasn't so general back in the early 1800s. People would give some effort towards keeping their teeth clean using water and sticks to scour their teeth with. Some people would use a rough cloth and rub it over their teeth in an attempt to keep them somewhat clean. There were rudimentary forms of a toothbrush, but these were expensive, and even in those homes that had them, you would generally be shared around amongst the family. Yes, they all shared the one toothbrush. And there really wasn't a profession such as a dentist as we know it today. There were some people that would work in this area but they were uncommon and also expensive so dental care like so many other health benefits remained the purview of the rich so you might be living in your small apartment or home working 12 hours a day in hard working conditions trying to supply food for your family and then you might start to get that feeling in your jaw that was the first sign of a toothache you might try a remedy that you'd heard about from those around you. Let's face it, even today if you complain of some ailment, there are always those around you and your family or at work that will offer you some obscure remedy that's worked for them. And in this case, you might actually get some peppermint oil. 
apply it to the cavity of the aching tooth and then press in a pellet of cotton to keep the oil in there, hoping that this will stop the pain. But if you have a child in your home under the age of five, peppermint oil can affect their breathing, even stopping it. If you had high blood pressure, although you might not even know that, peppermint oil may further elevate it and if you're pregnant, the oil might harm the unborn child. In 1885, if you had a toothache, you could spend 15 cents and get cocaine drops to relieve the pain. Yes, cocaine drops. I've posted the advertisement on Instagram and given the picture in the ad, it's deliberately aimed towards children having the medicine. So if the ache has become unbearable and you've run out of cocaine, it was off to the, well, where did you go to? One option for you would have been your local blacksmith. Why the blacksmith? I'm glad you asked. Because once the tooth was going rotten, your only real option was to have it taken out. No fillings. And let's face it, peppermint and cocaine are only going to last so long. And you don't want some weak-armed little skinny guy with a pair of pliers in your mouth struggling to yank that tooth. I'm sure you'd agree with me, if it's going to happen, you want that guy with the big arms that works all day with heavy metals and heavy tools to get a good hold and give it that one quick yank needed to remove it. So in many places, the blacksmith was your go-to guy for dental relief. Your other option, however, would have been the local barber. But the barber was the guy you went to for a haircut, right? Not at all. Barbers had a long history of surgical procedures. Because they were used to working with highly sharpened blades, barbers had long been involved in the health practice of bloodletting. Now, this of course is something you do not try at home, and I've kind of covered it off a little before in the medical episode where I spoke about the different humours that could be affecting your blood. And as I spoke about in episode 5, having various contaminants in your blood could change your behavior. For example, having yellow bile in your blood would mean that you would become angry and aggressive. It's where the term having bad blood comes from when we speak of someone's inappropriate behavior. Bloodletting was one of the methods used to relieve these blood issues, and wanting someone with very sharp blades meant that often as not, the work fell to the local barber. Now, it was back in the 1500s that barbers were actually banned from surgical work, although they remained in the same guild as doctors until 1745. And you know when you go to the barbers and they have that red and white pole spiralling outside the shop? Well, that represents the blood and bandages of their old tasks. As an aside, many American barber poles have an added blue stripe, but its origin is a little less well-defined. Some believe it represents the blue of a vein that would have been cut, and others believe it is simply a nod to patriotism with the red, white, and blue. Anyway, next time you go to the barbers, now you know why they have those poles out the front. Just don't ask them to open a vein, okay? But while the barbers were no longer allowed to do surgical procedures in the 1800s, they were still allowed to perform acts of dentistry. So if you didn't have a blacksmith nearby you, you could always head on down to the local barber and have him help you out. 
Uh, during the next couple of weeks, I'll be posting some photos up on the Instagram. It's at Victorian Gas Lamp. And you can have a look and see some other pictures there as well. Uh, seeing someone strapped into a seat and having a man levering themselves against your chest as they go to yank out a tooth gives you a real appreciation of the skills of today's dentists. And as for tools, well, it was either pliers or forceps and held onto as tightly as could be. Because remember, there's no such thing as anaesthetic. Fortunately, our century of choice saw some big developments in the area of ripping small bones out of your head. Firstly, as the century progressed, dentistry became a distinct profession of its own. Initially, however, pretty much anyone could put out an ad in the newspaper, calling themselves an operator on the tooth and roam about merrily ripping out teeth. These men tended to move around a lot, mainly because on the lack of skill often led to post-operative complications such as infection, and they didn't want to be around for that. But as time went on, men started training others via an apprentice system. These men began establishing themselves as dentists and setting up national organisations in an attempt to exclude the charlatans from the industry. While there were dental courses available around the world, the first official dental college in the world became available in Baltimore in the United States in 1840. The course lasted just two years. It's a long way from the exhaustive study required these days. What I did find interesting was that we always think the normal way of things is that it's many decades later before women ever get a chance at working in a particular field. However, Back in 1814, a dental course at the Estonian University of Tartu was completed by Josephine Serre, making her, from what I can find out, to be the first qualified woman in the dental field. And she must have set a good example, because later in 1829, her daughter, Marie-Louis, graduated in dentistry from the same university. So women were already solidly in the dental field from the very early beginnings of it being established as a separate discipline. These qualified men and women set about standardising dental procedures and also spreading their knowledge among dentists around the world, progressing techniques everywhere. And soon dental knowledge went from just taking teeth out to filling the cavities. This seems like a natural evolution of dental care, but surprisingly, I found out that fillings had been used for thousands of years. Yes, thousands. In fact, the earliest fillings were found in a 6,000-year-old tooth and had been made of beeswax. Later in history, there is evidence of some use of gold and a silver amalgam has been found in China, but the use of a combined metal for fillings, like what we use today, really didn't start until the 19th century. In the modern era, dentists experimented with resins, although they didn't provide a permanent solution as they soon dissolved or fell out. Some dentists even tried using molten metals like gold. Yes, you heard me right, molten metal, as in heating gold to melting point and dropping it in the cavity because going to the dentist apparently wasn't painful enough to begin with. 
This caused heat damage to the existing tooth, no surprise there, and so then dentists tried using a combination of tin, silver, mercury, and copper. Wait, what? Mercury, I hear you say? Yes, our old friend, mercury. This combination was used up until people started realizing that mercury was actually harmful and could seep into your body. Given that this toxic metal could cause huge health problems, which uh, regular listeners of this show are no doubt aware about, uh, you could get cancer, it can also cause problems like multiple sclerosis, the mercury was soon removed and the contents in a filling then and now are perfectly safe to have in your mouth. By the 1870s, the dental associations that had been formed had come to agreements on procedures including when to use gold foil or amalgam fillings with the formula that was created in 1895 by G.V. Black. Uh, it's pretty much the similar concoction to what gets used today. Even with the creation of materials that could be used in your teeth that wouldn't be trying to kill you, the techniques being used on your teeth were still being refined. Of course, it makes sense that before you fill the tooth, you need to clean out all the decay first. This wasn't always done, however, and caused a whole range of problems pretty soon after putting the filling in. But for those doing the job properly, or at least trying to, the only drill your dentist had to use at the beginning of the 19th century was a manual drill, which you twirled between your thumb and forefinger. I don't even want to think about how that felt. Wasn't until 1871 that James Morrison created a drill that used a foot pedal, a unit that was actually inspired by the early sewing machines. An electric drill was actually patented the following year by George Green, but don't forget, electricity wasn't in every home, or in this case, dentist's office, so many didn't have access to this marvel. And just so you know, for trivia's sake, the high-speed drills we know of today didn't really come about until the 1950s. One other thing that dental professionals were quick to adopt, and I guess they had a lot of incentive to do so, was painkilling drugs to use during their procedures. Jumping across the pond to Connecticut in the United States, dentist Horace Wells was at a traveling sideshow when he saw the effect that nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas, had on people and would induce anesthesia. You could say he put his mouth where his money was, because in December of 1844, he had one of his own wisdom teeth extracted painlessly by a colleague while under the effects of the gas. Thinking that he was onto something, it was a year later he attempted to demonstrate the technique at Harvard University. Sadly, he was laughed out of the lecture theatre when his patient cried out during the procedure. But a pupil of his, a man named William Morton, who was no doubt inspired by his teacher, only two years later, in December of 1846, used the already existing product ether and performed a successful painless extraction. 
he actually tried to cover up the ether by adding products to it to make it look and smell different and he called it Lithion. Trying to patent it and make money from a product named after the Greek myth of the river Leith, a river that when you drank from it made you forget your memories of your life, others soon realised that Morton was just using the commonly available ether and so his hopes of a rich future were dashed. But back to the United Kingdom, and as the years passed, dentists moved from not only putting in fillings, but to also working out preventative methods of dental care. This was an area that needed to be addressed because by the middle to the late 1800s, dentistry was expanding as an industry for one sweet reason. Sugar. Now, sugar had been around for centuries, but it wasn't that common. It was also very expensive. But with the advent of the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, sugar production increased and it became more readily available. Throughout the 1700s, Britain's consumption of sugar increased fivefold and into the 1800s it was the kingdom's leading import. This increase of course meant that the price dropped and it became available to lower income families. And boy did they love it. Back in 1700, the average consumption per head per year in Britain was just four pounds of sugar a year. And that rose to an amazing 18 pounds per head a year in 1800. And if that wasn't enough, by 1850, every person in Britain was consuming around 36 pounds or 18 kilos of sugar per year. So the teeth of the United Kingdom were paying a heavy price for everyone enjoying their sweets. Another thing you might not have realised actually helped dentists improve their service was plumbing. I'm sure we can all agree that suction hose thing they use is not the best, but before plumbing, dentists simply had a spittoon to one side that you would use. Big shout out to all those dental aides out there that these days you don't have to clean out those spittoons. Yeah, just yuck. But in 1867, the Whitcomb Fountain Spittoon was invented and supplied running water. And now because this was the Victorian era, style counts. So imagine going to the dentists and having your rinsing water supplied to you in a pipe shaped like a swan. So I really think dental officers need to bring that one back. Plus, the chairs were often made of carved mahogany and plushly upholstered. Well, it may have been painful going to the dentists, but at least it looked really impressive. But what happened when you hadn't listened to your dentists, kept eating that sugar, dealt with the extractions, survived the cavity fillings, and finally needed dentures? Well, lucky for you, in the 1800s, your dentist would be saying to you, no problems, hold my beer. Because dentures were available and they came in all sorts of styles. I'm sure you'd wear them. Maybe. Because dentures were made up of a variety of materials. French porcelain was a popular material, but these dentures were moulded as one piece and when being made for the shape, they would often distort, making them uncomfortable to wear. Wood was sometimes used for making dentures, although because of the constant moisture, it really wasn't practical. There is a common legend that the first president of the United States, George Washington, had wooden dentures. 
How this myth got started just isn't known. However, I'm here to tell you that he had a variety of dentures over the course of his life, none of which were wood. So that legend is just a fact that's false. Just like his teeth, I guess. Ivory or animal bone were also used. While they were tough enough as a material, they did tend to discolour and absorb odours. So I guess bad breath was something that you just had to put up with. But how is this for horrible? During the Victorian era, newly married women would have all their teeth removed. But why, you ask? Because removing them now would save the husband expensive dental bills from his wife later on. Even if the teeth were 100% fine, out they came. I can't make this stuff up, honestly. And before I end this episode, I've got one last set of dentures I want to sell you. If you want the really choice dentures, I've got some Waterloo teeth right here just for you. Why Waterloo teeth? Well, if you think the name references the Battle of Waterloo, credit to you. And you might already see where I'm going with this. People would scavenge the battlefields of Europe finding the corpses and taking their teeth. They would then collect so many that they actually sold these teeth by the barrel. If it wasn't bodies left on the field, they were then digging bodies up and taking their teeth. Yes, because your mouth would be filled with the teeth of dead people. But the demand for cadaver teeth was so great that grave robbers wouldn't even bother stealing the body. They just wanted the teeth. Of course, some poor people sold their teeth. These were preferable because you had less chance of septicemia and, you know, dying painfully. Because that's what I always look for in dentures. Anyway. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>